This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. What if they just took the boat? They could do it. It would be dangerous, but what if they just took the boat? They had the men. There were eight of them who were solid. They were good sailors, and they could keep their mouths shut. They had the men. And truth be told, Robert could probably handle it all on his own. He'd worked on all sorts of ships, schooners and slips, sidewheel steamers like the planter. Just let him get his hands on the wheel. And Robert Smalls knew these waters. He'd been sailing them for years, knew every inlet, every island. He could read the tides, intuit the shifts in the currents. He couldn't read, read. They didn't teach slaves to read. But he'd taught himself to interpret the nautical charts. Not that he'd need them. Not around here. He'd been piloting the planter for months, moving Confederate soldiers and supplies up and down the coast. He knew where all the mines were around the channel out of Charleston. Hell, he'd been there when they laid them down. He could do it. He could. What if they just took the boat? It had started as a joke from one of the other slaves who worked in the planter. But the joke stopped being funny. They started talking about it at night, started making plans. They were a year into the war, a year since Fort Sumter, there at the mouth of the harbor, put up Jeff Davis's flag. But the Yankees were closing in. They'd taken back Buford Island, just off the coast. Robert's mother was there now. He was born there. She had been too. Two generations of native-born slaves from Buford Island. She'd be safe there now. Free, even, if the Yankees stuck to their word. But who could say? He couldn't control what Abe Lincoln would do. He couldn't control much. He wasn't the man at the wheel. But if they took the boat, they could go straight to Buford. But they wouldn't even need to. If they took the boat, they'd just need to make it to the blockade, not far off the coast, where the Union gunboats lay in wait. They'd have to pick their moment. They'd have to put enough distance between the planter and the shore before anyone raised the alarm. They'd go right by Fort Johnson, right by Fort Sumter itself. They'd have to get there before dawn, or else someone would notice there weren't any white faces on board. And that would be that. If they got caught, they couldn't get caught. They would blow the planter and themselves up before they got caught. But they could just take the boat. Robert talked to Hannah, his wife, a hotel maid he'd met when his owner, a Mr. McKee, brought him to work in his house in Charleston. Robert's mother had convinced the man to let the then 12-year-old boy get a job. He made $16 a month. He got to keep one. But he saved for years, and when he met Hannah and they'd had a baby named Eliza, he was somehow able to buy them, buy his own wife and child, from their owner for $800. But he knew that did nothing to ensure their safety. His mother made sure he knew that, taught him that as a boy, made sure he knew that their life of relative ease in the master's house was nothing like freedom, was an impermanent thing. She took him to watch men and women and girls and boys his age, younger, sold at auction, prodded, humiliated, distributed. She sent him into the fields, to the whipping post, 
to see and to understand that his life was not his own, not here. So Robert told his wife it would be dangerous. But there were seven men who'd agreed to go with him, who'd placed their faith in him, who would leave at a moment's notice, who wouldn't tell a soul, who awaited his command. He told her that she and their two daughters would have to be on that boat. It may turn out to be the last thing he ever did, but he was going to take that boat, and he was going to take the wheel into his own hands, and with it, all of their lives. The crew of the planter spent the afternoon of May 12, 1862, loading cargo at a dock in front of the Confederate headquarters and its two dozen armed guards. By the end of the workday, the planter was loaded with six heavy cannons and nearly a thousand pounds of ammunition. The work was exhausting, and the ship's captain, its first mate, and its engineer wanted to kick back and head into town. They left Robert, capable Robert, dutiful Robert, in charge in their absence told him to make sure the planter was ready to cast off at 6 a.m. for a routine run, a quick trip to supply a fort down the coast, up the channel, past Fort Johnson, past Sumter at the mouth of the harbor, bang a left, and hug the coast on the way south, well safe of the Union blockade. And the three Confederate seamen went off to the bar or the brothel or wherever the night would take them. At 3 a.m., Robert broke into the captain's quarters and stole his uniform his pistols, and the broad straw hat he always wore to keep the sun from his eyes. By 3.30, his co-conspirators were aboard, stoking the fire and building up steam. The engine was loud, would certainly wake the watchman, but 3.30 was a reasonable hour if the captain wanted to get an early start. Smalls, dressed in the man's uniform, hat pulled down low despite the darkness, raised the Confederate flag. And then they took the boat. They rendezvoused with a small ship, bobbing in the harbor. And Small's family, and the families of four other sailors boarded the planter. And off they went, into the night. At Fort Johnson, an old Revolutionary War battlement built into the hillside at Windmill Point on James Island. The lookouts trained their guns in the boat. But Small's whistled out a signal. He knew all the codes, and they let the planter pass. But the tide conspired against them, and it was dawn when they came upon Fort Sumter. Light enough that they could make out the men with their guns, ready to sink the ship, if anything was amiss. And from that distance, in that light, those men would have been able to make out the race of Robert Smalls. But in the captain's hat, pulled low over his face, and his collar up high, with the same peculiar bearing that the planter's usual captain was known for, they didn't notice and he pulled the cord on the whistle, sounding out the code, twice long and once short, and waited. And the men in the battlement held their fire, and by the time anyone at Fort Sumter noticed that the planter didn't turn left, that it was heading straight out to sea, they were out of range. And Robert Smalls held the wheel and pressed on toward the blockade with a gift. He would tell the Union captain who spotted the planter as it charged out of the fog, who'd trained his own guns on this renegade ship that seemed poised to ram through the line until he saw the white flag of surrender and the damnedest thing. A handsome 23-year-old black man in a Confederate captain's coat and a frilly shirt and 16 slaves, men, women, and children dancing and shouting on the deck of a side-wheel steamer. And it was quite a gift. 
There was the boat itself, a useful addition to the thin Union fleet, and the guns, some of which were Union cannons, stolen after the fall of Fort Sumter the year before. But the prize was Robert Smalls himself. And while his family went off to join his mother in Buford, toward the promise of safety and the hope of emancipation, Smalls became a sailor for the United States military. Not a sailor in the United States military, for he may have been free, may have just freed himself, but he was still black. And there were no black sailors in the United States military. Not officially. But still, he turned all of the knowledge he had gained while under the yoke of the Confederacy, of troop positions and gun placements and codes and supply routes and schedules, methods and mines and torpedoes, and turned it against them. He helped plan attack routes. He piloted the planner through the inlets, around the islands he knew so well, pointed out enemy positions and points of entry and attack on maps he had taught himself to read. His commander called him a hero. He also called him a pleasant-looking darky, but he gave him the wheel. And Robert Smalls was famous. Among the furious rebels and fearful slaveholders and southerners, who were looking at the slaves in their midst, wondering which among them might just take a boat of their own, or grab the whip, or burn the house down. A $4,000 bounty was put on Robert Small's head, but a $5,000 award was authorized by Congress, and another $15,000 to be split amongst the band of thieves. Abolitionists brought him to New York and put the young Robert Smalls in front of rapturous crowds. The Secretary of War brought him to Washington, where he was a member of a delegation that met with President Lincoln to argue for freeing and arming the slaves. There are people who say that Smalls swayed the president, that his passion and his heroism changed Abe's mind and changed the course of the war. And there are others who seem to be right, who point out that Lincoln had already made up his mind at that point, that he had already presented the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet a month or so before. But there was an August day in 1862 when a 23-year-old former slave met the President of the United States and each man knew the other by reputation and must have had a moment when each internally assessed the other man in the flesh against the one they had seen in some cross-hatched drawings in Harper's. By war's end, he had been in 17 battles, we're told. He had piloted an ironclad which took 90 shells in an assault on Fort Sumter. He was awarded for his heroism. He was given formal command of the planter and a rank and a pension. And when Charleston surrendered, he was at the wheel again, bringing the planter back to that dock in front of the Confederate headquarters. He was mobbed and hailed as the conquering hero he basically was. He returned home to Beaufort Island where his mother had been born a slave, where he had been born a slave in a cabin behind their master's house. And then he bought that house, bought the whole plantation, with the money he'd gotten for taking the boat. And he lived there with his family until his death in 1915. But before he died, during the 54 years, since he passed Fort Sumter in the shimmer of dawn and headed out to the open ocean, Robert Smalls fought to keep hold of the wheel. They call it reconstruction, though the name has never sat right. It wasn't a rebuilding. It wasn't merely a clearing of rubble, a patching of fences, 
or a new coat of whitewash on a neoclassical plantation pillar. The order of things had been upended. Hundreds of years of violence and oppression and theft and murder and unconscionable acts in the name of what? Take your pick. Order. Progress. Capital. Faith. Were ended. And there were no charts to follow. No way to know what lay ahead. Robert Smalls tried to do his part and tried to lead the people on Beaufort Island through the fog. He learned to read. He founded the first public school in South Carolina. He negotiated for better working conditions and fairer labor practices for former slaves. He was elected to the state legislature and made those rules law. And he served five terms in the United States Congress, where he fought to desegregate public transportation and the military, to stop the tax code from favoring the wealthy and punishing the poor, to give women the right to vote. He was one of the most powerful and effective black politicians of the 19th century. In that brief period before the Klan and its conspirators, and the state governors and their conspirators, defrauded and threatened and lynched votes away from men like him. We stuffed ballot boxes. We shot Negroes. We are not ashamed of it. That's what South Carolina's governor and later senator said in 1900, looking fondly back on what he'd achieved during that time while Robert Smalls was trying to keep his hands in the wheel. There was a day, I'll tell you this story, but I'm not entirely sure what it all means. There was a day, sometime in there, after the world had been undone, when it should have been remade, but instead it got reconstructed. There was a day, let's say it was summer. Somehow when I pictured the Smalls living in that plantation house there on Beaufort, the white pillars, the wraparound porches, the whole thing. And picture summer. Sea breeze taking the edge off the swelter. And this woman, an old white woman, walked up the path toward the house, past the empty slave quarters, the overgrown lawn flecked with wildflowers, and came up the front stairs. Maybe the kids were reading on the porch. Maybe Hannah Smalls was playing piano inside by the open window. And the woman was acting strangely. She had dementia. Robert was the one to recognize her. She was the wife of the man who once owned him. He had died some years before. And here she was, confused. She said this was her home. But it was different somehow. So different now. And the Smalls took her in. And she lived there comfortably until her death. The Memory Palace is written and produced and stuff by me. With production assistance by Kathy Tu. You can follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. And on Facebook. Same idea. I am going to be uh, doing some touring this year. I'm going to do some live shows in the Midwest and Toronto in May. Um, should be ready to announce those dates in the next couple of weeks. And then East Coast, well, Northeast, Swing in the fall check this space 
for updates or uh, at thememorypalace.org. I do have one other thing to ask you guys. I am in the market for a very specific person. I'm looking to hire uh, my first research assistant. Um, they, this person needs to be in the Los Angeles area um, for a number of reasons with uh, an academic background in either history, American history, American studies, that sort of thing. Someone who brings a lot of knowledge to the table, um, as well as a lot of research skills, who might be able to work for the Memory Palace uh, part-time. So, uh, if you uh, know anyone like that, if you are someone like that, hit me up um, through my website at thememorypalace.org. And thanks. Thanks.